When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. People always say, how do you know when a piece is done? It's like, okay, when, when I quit feeling distressed, when I quit feeling like, ah, I don't like that, that's not right. Trust your enthusiasm. Then you get this organic connected thing. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, Nate Chinen. Nate, always good to see your face in a little rectangle on Zoom. Uh, Who's our guest this week? Our guest is the incredible Grammy-winning composer, arranger, and bandleader, Maria Schneider. Amazing. Now, I am a Maria Schneider fan, but just for the listeners who might not be familiar with her, why did you want to speak with her and what makes her big band work so special? Well, it's so evocative and it's just beautiful and coloristic and flowing and really has a sonic signature and an identity that is almost instantly recognizable. As you said, I'm a big fan of her music, too. I've had the pleasure of observing and writing about it for about 25 years now. But really, what led me to her was the format and purpose of this show, you know, because there's just so much emotional depth and precise detail in her work as a composer. And that's something that's unfamiliar to most people in the particulars. You know, how do you do that? But really relatable in a broader sense. So before we begin, there's a couple people who come up in the interview that I think it's worth kind of discussing a little more at length for our listeners who maybe aren't that familiar with jazz history. Those are two of Maria's mentors, Gil Evans and Bob Brookmeyer. Who are Gil Evans and Bob Brookmeyer and why are they important? Well, these are two of really the Mount Rushmore figures of modern jazz orchestration. And Gil Evans is probably the the better known of the two partly because of his affiliation with Miles Davis, which began with the birth of the cool in the late 40s and then continued in the 50s and early 60s in these really masterpiece orchestral albums like Sketches of Spain. So that's one major influence on Maria. And she's really understood as kind of the the heir apparent to his legacy. Um, and Bob Brookmeyer, who had a, you know, a working relationship with Gil Evans, Brookmeyer is a little bit more cerebral, but like every bit 
the the genius and really also understood the palette of the big band. You know, he brought all kinds of modern classical language into that tradition and modernized really the the art form um, and also had a, a very important teaching perch at the New England Conservatory. You know, and that's something that Maria will talk about, um, just how valuable it was to get his his input and his encouragement. So that's just some of the uh, cornucopia of delights that await our listeners. Is there anything extra for our Slate Plus subscribers? In addition to her work at the forefront of jazz orchestration, Maria is out on the ramparts as an advocate for artist compensation in the digital era. So our Slate Plus sidebar is all about the economics of streaming, something Mm -hmm. that the music world had to grapple with well before it hit the movie and TV industry. Um, And then how she created her own sustainable alternative as a recording artist. Well, I don't want to miss that, but luckily I'm not going to miss that because I am a Slate Plus subscriber. And I got to say, if you want to hear that or, you know, bonus full episodes of shows like Slow Burn or Big Mood, Little Mood, if you want to support everything we do right here on Working, there's really few better things you could do for yourself and for us than to sign up for Slate Plus today. Go to slate.com slash working plus. We'll have all the details right there. Okay, now let's listen in to Nate's conversation with Maria Schneider. Maria Schneider, thank you for joining us on The Working Podcast. What a pleasure to see you. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, I am fairly new to this racket. I have been co-hosting as a fill-in this summer at Working, which is a podcast all about the creative process. And they gave me, you know, carte blanche in terms of who I wanted to speak to. And your name was very close to the top of the list because... Not only because I I have so much admiration for what you do, but also because I feel like it is the ultimate mystery to to so many people. Like, how does a composer, arranger, band leader do that job? Your timing is good because I've been working on my liner notes for this LP project that I'm doing. Well, so we should set that up. I mean, this is a project called Decades, and it's your first ever vinyl release But more importantly, it is a career retrospective looking back on, I guess, 30 years of recorded history with the Maria Schneider Orchestra. What is the emerging picture then as you look back on these 30 years? Well, the through line for me, sadly, is fear. (laughs) As I write about all the pieces and my favorite things that I've written that I'm putting on this album, they all have in common just really intense fear. And I I remember years ago, you know, when I first started writing for some class I had at the University of Minnesota, we read Rollo May's The Courage to Create. Mm. And at the time, I didn't realize what courage it takes. And so that's the thread. Um, The other side is that I really have found in looking at this that the three decades had three unique forces that made that decade kind of become what it is. And and that to me has been really, really interesting because 
I didn't realize it, you know, that the pressures, you know, it's like the pressure in the earth that makes crystals and rocks and various things. And it's like the pressures on your life, good and bad, the beautiful things that come into your life, they, at least in my case, they just affect my music so much. And, you know, I've always felt my music is really autobiographical, but it's, it's almost like a divining rod, you know, and then you look back and you say, ah, yeah, it's told me about more about my life than I knew at the time. Well, this is interesting. So, so the first decade would be the 1990s, right? Mm -hmm. What was the tectonic pressure during that decade? Well, I think one thing was the first kind of coming out with my music and, you know, I'd studied with Brooke Meyer and I'd worked with Gil Evans and I was searching to find who I am. I mean, my biggest concern when I left college was, will my music have an identity? How do you find your voice? Who Mm -hmm. am I? Because all the music that I loved was so instantly identifiable. Right. So there was kind of that searching. And I think there was also this feeling in me that jazz to be serious had to be serious. Mm. So a lot of that music, if I look back at it, has, and I, I like it, you know, I still play a lot of it, you know, it's, but a lot of it has a bit of a brooding kind of thing, a sort of dark intensity to it. So I think there was some of me was, you know, trying to prove my muscle as a jazz composer. And and then there was kind of an event at the end of the first decade that was really a change maker in creating the second, what I think affected the music of the second decade. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about that event. But first, let's not lose this thread of... Bob Brookmeyer and Gil Evans, who were yeah. both geniuses and and really mentors to you. And, you know, what was it like to be a young music student and to approach these two, you know, titans of orchestration and composing and arranging? Well, firstly, it was really fascinating because the two couldn't be more different as people, but they had such an, a tremendous respect for each other. So mm-hmm. Gil, when I started working for Gil, and I will say it was a bizarre situation. I met Gil, you know, I was a music copyist working in a, a music copying office, which a lot of people don't know, but that's pen and ink calligraphy. And yeah. you, we'd all sit at tables and they would, you know, somebody would come in like Don Sebesky writing arrangements for the Tony Awards or some singer or whatever it was or recording session. And we'd all be there copying the music. And I ended up connecting with Gil because of that job. A composer, Tom Pearson, came in. I uh, We got talking. We connected over music that I was Xeroxing for him. And we had lunch and he asked me who my favorite writers were. And I went on and on about Gil. And then he called me that night and he said, Gil wants to meet you. He happens to be (laughs) my best friend, which I had no idea this guy even knew him, you know? And so, but what was strange about it is that Gil, well, in the beginning, it was just copying. But the thing that was so weird is soon he started having me transcribe 
Then he had me start reorchestrating his music for a big band because he started working in Europe. I can tell you I didn't deserve that level of responsibility, but there was something that Gil had that I read about in one of his biographies where he would just trust people. Mm -hmm. He would meet you. He'd get a feeling about you. You know, and years later, his wife told me that he used to sometimes call her after I left and say, Maria looks so much like mom. (laughs) So maybe it was just because (laughs) I looked like his mother, you know, who knows (laughs) why it was. But then he would say to me, he knew I was studying with Bob. I didn't study with Gil. I was around Gil and Gil Mm -hmm. didn't profess to to talk about how he did things. You know, it was more like do this. And then if if you did it wrong, he would scream like like in a like a no, no. And it, like for instance, one <laughs> this, just to give you an example, one thing I reorchestrated for Gil was a passage that went from one note and spread into a very thick sonority. Okay. Okay. I did it like I learned in college. I would have gotten an A in school. The trumpets go to the top, the low bones to the bottom, saxes in the middle, powerful. All the notes were Gil's notes. I, I of course, never changed a note. Gil screamed in pain. And he said, no, I wanted some of the high instruments going to the bottom of the range and the low instruments going to the top. So at the end, it feels like everybody's (laughs) screaming. And it's just like, oh my God. You know, so in that moment, I realized, wow, his perspective is so different. You know, he's, it's like a a rule-breaking world based on going for something that is its own set of rules, this emotional effect that Mm -hmm. he wanted. And it was like, holy crap, I would have never thought of that, you know? And then Gil was very intimidated by Bob. He expressed that like when I, he knew I said, oh, I'm going, I'm going to have a lesson with Bob this weekend. Oh, he's so intellectual. He's so amazing. He, he knows so much, you know, he, Hmm. he had this tremendous respect for him. And I think he saw Bob as schooled and Gil as Mm self-taught, but the discipline of Gil's music and the logic within it was beyond masterful and very intellectual, even if his thought process and how he perceived his process maybe didn't feel like that. And Bob also expressed almost like an intimidation about Gil, Mm -hmm. which made me feel bad. You know, I felt like, like, wow, the last thing I want is talking about these two people makes them each feel bad about themselves. You know, it's like, <laughs> like, like what happens on social media now or something. So I, anyway, but I credit Bob for helping me find my voice because Bob was always asking questions like, okay, you put a solo there. Why did you put a solo there? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. you know, the tune happened. It's like, no, a solo should only happen when the only thing that can happen is the solo. It's like, Wow, what does that mean? I mean, in a way, it's similar to Gil. You know, it's like the range should only be the range of the instruments if what you want is the comfortable range of the instrument. But Mm -hmm. what are the other possibilities? You know, so the takeaway from the whole thing was, oh my God, I need to start my own band and find my own voice. This I have to experiment and find out who I am. Yeah, I love that. I've heard that about Brookmeyer as a teacher, 
you know, um, he mentored quite a few people. Um, but just this idea of, well, why are you doing that? Like, is it just because that's what the conventional wisdom would have you do? And it's such a valuable lesson to get from a pedagogue, right? Like, absolutely. Like, what is the motivation for this decision you're making? You know, and, and that actually leads me to the idea of the big band as a tradition or a language. Um, there's so much in that language that you cherish, and it's it's very obvious. But there's also quite a bit that you seem to deliberately kind of set to the side or ignore or push against. Um, one example that I'll pull out is a sort of a common metaphor that the big band inspires, which is, you know, machinery. You know, you think about pistons firing and, you know, I guess in my mind, I'm thinking of like Duke Ellington Daybreak Express in 1933, where he, you know, uncannily mimics the sound of a locomotive. And there was something so magical about that, but it is also mechanical, right? And I've never reached for that metaphor when thinking about your music. You know, it's almost the opposite of of machinery. And so I wonder, as you were setting about to establish your voice, like, was there a part of you that consciously said, well, this is what I'm not going to do. These are the parts of this tradition that that I personally choose to reject. I mean, one thing I would say is the thing that I loved about Gill's music is that it could make you cry. It could make you go, you know, and there are pieces by Thad Jones that do that. The first two chords of to you just make me go. But a lot of the music does have that, power, that excitement. And I love the Basie band and I love all those things, but I wanted my music to have that nuance and that air in it. Mm -hmm. But you want to have that excitement. And I remember saying to Bob, you know, I want to be able to have that power. And he expressed to me, he said, okay, he said, you know, there's a femininity in your music, you know, Mm. he wasn't, afraid to say that. And I wasn't afraid to hear that, you know, and he said, and whether it's true because I'm female or not. And I said, but I want my music to have strength too. And so he said, okay, so I'm going to teach you how to do that. And it was really about rhythm, repetition, you know, how to get that power in the music. And so it was really wonderful to be able to talk to Bob candidly about that. Yeah. Was there a part of you that bristled at, at the sort of essentialism of that? Or did you no, feel no, like... No, 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 no. I wanted that. I wanted that because my music naturally... I remember the first piece I brought into the Mel Lewis band. It was called Greenpeace. And I remember the whole opening theme was... It's on my first album. That's so pastoral. And I, I just said to Bob, you know, this is what I'm hearing. But I wanted to have power, you know, and so then we talked about, so I did all sorts of modal things and vertical edifices that are kind of like your pistons that you talk about Mm -hmm. and various, you know, development in it. And I think that first album expresses some of that wish for that power. Yeah. 
We'll be back with more of Nate's conversation with Maria Schneider after this. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com slash working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hey, listeners, Isaac Butler here. First of all, thank you so much for listening to Working. Uh, If you're a fan of this episode and you haven't subscribed yet, why don't you go ahead and click subscribe wherever you get your podcasts? That way you will never miss an episode. If you're already subscribed and you're wondering, what can I do to spread the word about Working? Well, the easiest way is actually to rate it uh, and review it wherever you get your podcast. So if that's Apple, you know, leave us a leave us five stars, like your favorite Uber driver and a little review. And if you're on uh, Overcast, just click the little star next to this episode. That'll recommend it to more of its listeners. All right. Thanks so much for everything you do to support us. Let's uh, continue with Nate's conversation with Maria Schneider. One of the, the most miraculous things that I've experienced with your music is that evocation of feeling, but also of the natural world. And, you know, you've talked about this a bit, but it's probably most vividly expressed on 
your 2015 album, The Thompson Fields, where you get this really flowing sense of place and geography um, in the music. And you, you revisited that idea again on the, the latter half of Data Lords, your most recent release. So what is the translation process like? How do you think about the sensory experience of like a breeze moving across a wheat field and turn that into music? Yeah. Well, I don't very often sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write about this thing. Occasionally I do that. But usually what I do is a musical idea comes to me in the case of the Thompson Fields, which you're referring to in the laundry room of the basement of my <laughs> building. That melody came to me and I'm like, I, I got to go upstairs and I played it. And it transported me to the top of that silo back home, mm -hmm. looking over those fields. So this is the part that is the mystery that I don't understand, but it's, it's almost like, I don't know if I happen to come up with notes that then have an association from my palette of experience, or if it's almost like the experience wants to be expressed and it's something almost more mystical than that, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I'm, I really, don't exactly know, but sometimes I think it's the later thing because of the way people sometimes respond to certain pieces that hit me initially that way. You know, it's um, Sky Blue, which I wrote the, the week that my best friend died, the Thompson Fields, which brings me home in some kind of way. And I mm -hmm. somehow I feel people feel that that didn't necessarily grow up in Wyndham, Minnesota, standing on top of a silo. And so once the music attaches itself to a feeling or a memory, a place, the pretty road from sky blue, you know, once it tells me it's that, then every choice I make from then on, I feel like it has to keep that sympathetic vibration going of something inside of me. And the choices can be intellectual, like, but even that is the intellectual is somehow organic because a lot of times what I'll do then is I'll look at that first idea and I'll say, what's the DNA of that idea? It's like mm -hmm. in the other room, I have a microscope and I love to look at an insect or a leaf or, and you start seeing all these patterns and things. And it's the same thing. I'll look at that idea and just start to see the patterns inside that that are making me vibrate on that level. Mm -hmm. When I find those patterns, now I can intellectually build on those things, develop so that everything has a feeling of organic outgrowth from that initial idea and always choosing based on the that within me it feels like that thing. And 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 at the end, when I said when that place or that experience, and when I conduct music and I find myself transported to that place, again and again, I'm like, how the hell does that happen? 
Yeah. How did that happen? But that's the best I can describe it. I don't I don't know. That's really beautifully put because first of all, I love that you choose sympathetic vibration as your metaphor because it's sound, you know, and it's physics. Um, but this idea of respecting the sort of internal logic that's dictated by your intuition, right? Yes. You know, there are no rules except there are rules if you want to stay in tune with that spark or that initial feeling. There, there are rules. Here's what I tell students because, you know, so many students sit and write with so little confidence. And I know that because that's me too. And I say, trust your enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And remember, you are not a, an outsider looking at this universe. You evolved with this universe. You, you There's patterns in your body, things that are miraculous, things that are going on in your brain, everything. You can't help but be something that vibrates on the plane of the universe because that's who we are so i feel like we almost can't ha help it and if we trust our enthusiasm and our choices are our own which like the brookmeyer thing not just doing something because somebody dictated and you think it's right but doing it because you feel it like like gilded with that crazy choice of people playing in their uncomfortable ranges you know that mm -hmm. that vibrated with his internal sense of what the music is supposed to do to you, not how well it's supposed to be executed. You know what right. I mean? And and right. the, and so then you get this organic connected thing. And it's amazing with Gil that when I made that choice for him, because he asked me to, and it was wrong, but you know what I mean? He asked me <laughs> to do it. Physically, he I could see it gave him such distress. Mm -hmm. And I feel the same thing. Like when I'm, you know, working and the music, like people always say, how do you know when a piece is done? It's like, okay, when, when I quit feeling distress, when I quit feeling like, ah, I don't like that. That's not right. <laughs> and what are your tools? I, you know, do you compose primarily at the piano? Do you sit in front of score paper? Like in your old, yeah, yeah. old days as a copyist, like what, you know, what are the materials well, I only learned to use a computer program for notating music during COVID, which I'm not wow. particularly proud of <laughs> because, you know, and I also was like, oh, my God, if I'm going to be teaching and I don't even know how to use these programs, I've just got to get into the 20th century. and in, Into the 20th century. <laughs> or 21st. What, what are we in? Yeah, get out of the 20th century into the 21st. You know, because I was hiring copyists, which also is expensive. And, and I never had those tools of hearing what they call a MIDI file of your music. Mm -hmm. You know, people who use a computer can play out an approximation with and, and a pretty darn good one with instruments. And I thought, wow, you know, that could be nice sometimes because I'm sitting here going, Ah, oh, okay. Let me start from the beginning in my head again. You know, right, right. And it's like, wait a minute. Nobody else on the planet is doing this, or not so many people. You know, but that's the way I've basically worked. And I largely work at the piano, but then sometimes I I really want to get away from the piano, especially the piano, and even in front of the score paper, you can lose all sense of time. 
And what I mean is you spend a lot of time working on a few bars. It starts to feel like that idea is something you've been doing for five minutes, you know, that mm-hmm. it's five minutes of music and it might be 15 seconds. And so then you get the feeling, okay, I need to move on where musically, no, it needs to repeat. It needs to develop. And so a lot of times I'll just get up and I'll, I'll dance. And then my body kind of tells me, oh, this needs to repeat another time. This is now it it needs, you know, and so my body will tell me where is flow needed? Where is impact needed? Where is, you know, almost like I'm watching a, a choreography, which when I was a kid, I danced and I did figure skating. So that kind of, you know, makes sense in some kind of way too. Yeah, that that sense of kinetic flow. And anyone who has ever seen the Maria Schneider Orchestra has taken note of your your movements as a conductor because you're not just you know waving a baton. There's yeah. a real sense of the music kind of flowing through you that is sort of kinetic and embodied, right? And I I have to imagine that your experience dancing and your interest in dance, you know, is a big part of that. Maybe. Yeah. And I see sound almost sculpturally sometimes, you know, with different materials that are some are denser and some are more transparent or, you know, so sometimes I almost feel like when I'm hearing the music, if, you know, I feel like one section is playing a little too hard or not smooth enough or whatever, you know, I just with my hands try to give them the feeling of I want this rounded out or, mm-hmm. you know, or or I give them I want this more punctuated. And I'm sure I'm doing incredibly unorthodox things, but my body is sort of trying to show them. It's, it's like the reverse of dance. You dance to the music. And for me, mm-hmm. I'm trying to show the music what it needs to be, you know, through my motions, which I, I guess is what any conductor does to some degree. Before we go, I'd like to pivot briefly to the work you did with David Bowie. And for listeners who don't know, this was mainly a track called Sue, parentheses, or in a season of crime that was released in 2014 and really kind of paved the way for Bowie's final album, Black Star. Yeah. But the track itself won a Grammy Award and a version of the song with different instrumentation appeared on Black Star. So can you tell me, I, I, you know, at the time you and I talked a little bit about how empowered you felt working with David and, and the, the kind of feedback that he gave you really sort of adding some, you know, fuel to your fire. Can you recall that? Like, what was that? What were those conversations like? What was that collaboration like? The first thing, again, for me was, you know, that thing I talked about in the beginning, the fear. You know, I always come in with the fear and saying to David, well, what if you don't like it? What if we write something horrible? I mean, this idea of connecting rock to big band, this could be you singing with my big band. I'm like, really? You want to do this? This is so weird. Are you sure? You know, it was almost he must have thought, man, she's really trying to talk me out of this. And he said, look, you know, if I don't like this or you don't like it, I'm not going to put it out. I wouldn't do that to myself or to you, you know? And and then the thing he said that I carry with me literally every day, he said, you know, the great thing in music is if the plane goes down, we all walk away. So just throw it out there. And that was just so helpful and continues to be helpful to me. And 
I mean, I couldn't really believe I was sitting at my piano with David Bowie and him singing and us kind of testing sounds. No, how about Sue? No. It's like, you know what I mean? Just like, it was like, I just can't even believe I'm doing this. You know, it's just, it's again, it's that same thing, you know, how, I mean, he took a chance coming to me. I think it was Tony Visconti's idea, actually. Mm -hmm. I don't know whose idea it was, but he um, took this chance on me, but then it ended up, well, influencing me in a huge way, but in some odd way, he he would have never found his way to that if not for me. It's yeah. it's so amazing how, and I think his whole career, all those collaborations and different things he did. I mean, it's it's kind of a lesson in the beauty of just reaching out to something totally different, just to see where it takes you, yeah. and what comes your way, and it's amazing. Well, we're, we're sort of winding down, but I wanted to ask one question about accolades, right? You know, we mentioned that Sue or In a Season of Crime is one of your Grammy Awards, um, and that was for Best Arrangement, instrumental, Instruments, and Vocals. Um, you have a total of seven Grammys. Um, three of them are for Best Large Jazz Ensemble Album, and then the other two are for, or the other three rather, are for Best Contemporary Classical Composition, and then twice you won Best Instrumental Composition. So that's a lot of gold hardware in your in your apartment. And I wondered, <laughs> do any of those golden gramophones have a, a particular story that you want to tell or or a certain kind of resonance? Well, they're all they're all very meaningful, but the biggest one was the first one because it was that concert in the garden album which is an album i'm really really proud of that album to me is really beautiful and, and it got inducted into the national recording registry which i think there's only 600 albums in the whole history of music that are in that it's really a very exclusive honor but that album was also aside from being an album i musically was very proud of it was that break from the traditional record company and doing artist share selling only on the internet when everybody in the business told me I was crazy that I'd never make enough, you know, find enough people to pay for a record. Right. You know, we crowdfunded it. It started my whole thing that to this day is enabling me to record incredibly expensive albums. You know, I mean, Data Lords was like a quarter of a million dollars, you know, the whole thing. And you know, I go all out on the design always. And, you know, so winning that Grammy, having that be our first was just like, wow. Yeah. It's very meaningful to me on so many. And I'm so glad it was an album that I feel so proud of musically. And it, and David Baker recorded it. Did you know David Baker? Not personally, but. Oh, yeah. he was such a character. 
he was just amazing. And, you know, so it was just a memorable session for me. Um, Bob Brookmeyer showed up in the middle of the session at a really important point. And yeah, so that would be the one. That's beautiful. And that reminds me that it's been a minute since I put that album on. So I will be rushing to my stacks to pull that out and revisit it. (laughs) Maria Schneider, thank you so much for being on Working. And everyone listening, go check out her music. You have to find it at mariaschneider.com. Thank you, Nate. When we return, Nate and I will talk about finding your voice, respecting the inner logic of your work, even if you don't totally know what it is, and how other art forms can influence the one you are working on. All that and more after this. Nate, that was such a wonderful conversation. You know, I could spend this whole time talking about David Bowie and Black Star and his move into jazz and, or, you know, Maria's uh, sonic palette or whatever. But, you know, we try to focus on the creative process here. So I want to highlight two things that the two of you talked about that I think are, are actually kind of related. The first is Bob Brookmeyer's idea of always asking, what is the motivation for this decision you're making? And the second is her idea of experimenting wildly in order to find your voice. And You know, those two ideas are actually more related than they might seem, because the only way you really find out why you're making the kinds of decisions you make is to make a bunch of decisions and see what happens, right? That experimentation actually leads to the solution, at least to me. Do you feel like that's been a common thread in interviews that you do with composers? You know, most people who reach this upper tier of creative achievement, they have a really thorough understanding of tradition and technique, whatever that might mean in their field. But, you know, as we've heard many times, those elements are a means toward artistic expression, not the thing itself. So there, there really has to be an allowance for the unexpected, for room to play. And, you know, since we are talking about composers, I'll point out that this is a big reason Duke Ellington kept his band on the road year round. Even though it was an enormous financial and logistical strain, he had a traveling laboratory for sound. Now, Maria doesn't quite have that luxury because uh, the economics are just impossible. And most of the musicians in her band are, are really busy in their own right, you know, with their own careers and as sidemen. But, you know, because of the longevity of this band, she's forged such a bond with these players over the years that she really knows the instrument, you know, meaning the whole orchestra. Mm-hmm. And so she can try things out and hear the execution. And then sometimes that result leads to another set of ideas. Yeah, totally. And and I guess maybe related to that is respecting the internal logic of your intuition. You know, I was really struck by that, or I guess as she put it, trust your enthusiasm. Every piece of art that you make, it has an internal logic to it and it connects to your own feeling of what is good, of what unifies the project. And that is so much more important than received or cliched ideas of what good is. Mm-hmm. And, and for Maria you know, when she violates the internal rules, even if she doesn't know what those rules are, it actually makes her physically distressed. You know, her body is like a dowsing rod in that way. (laughs) And, um, I don't know that I feel that way, but I will say that I know on some emotional level when I'm not honoring my own work, 
you know, or when I'm in bad faith with the work, because the work actually has its own rules and its own needs. And they're not dictated by me completely. They're dictated by the work itself. And I feel like for us in the journalism biz, an example of that is an editor is forcing you to make a change that you just know is wrong for the piece. Sometimes you make it anyway because it's wrong for the piece, but not catastrophic. And, you know, your deadline's coming up and it's your first time writing for them, but you still feel like shit a bit afterwards. (laughs) Uh, And sometimes you fight it out because it really is important to you. And I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, you've worked in this business for a long time. I'm just curious about how you navigate that stuff. I mean, I I am in tune with the situation you're describing where the rhythm or the flow or the essence of a piece really demands its own form of respect, you know, Mm -hmm. and I don't find myself ever bristling at editorial feedback the way that I did as a younger writer, you know, when maybe the natural instinct was to go into a defensive crouch um, at any feedback. And maybe that's because my work is more structurally sound than it used to be, um, comes with experience. Or maybe it's because I've now been an editor myself and I have more of an appreciation for the process and know that, you know, that the feedback is not, you know, I mean, it is criticism, but it's not criticism if you get my drift. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, so, you know, I, I rarely encounter that nightmare scenario that you described where you're, you have to introduce a discordant note that kind of ruins the chord. I think if that happened, I would push back pretty hard. Yeah, totally. And and finally, I just want to stress something that she talks about, the the importance of dance and sculpture to her work, where she finds inspiration from other forms. And I got to say, nearly every artist I know and that I talk to, whether it's over a cup of coffee or an interview, you know, if they're doing something interesting in their form. They're doing it in part because they're really bringing ideas from other art forms into it. Like I'm a nonfiction prose writer, right? But I'm always thinking about comic books and documentary film and Mm -hmm. plays and how they do storytelling and what their rules are and how they work and what, what's interesting and forward thinking there. And like, how can I steal that (laughs) and bring it to prose? You know? Yeah. You're a journalist. You're also a jazz enthusiast. You know, you're, you've forgotten more about jazz than most of us will ever know. Do you feel that the music itself informs your writing, you know, when you're writing, are you like, ah, the rhythm of this is off. It's in three, four time and it needs to be in four, four time or whatever. Uh, how should people who are kind of thinking about, you know, uh, oh, maybe I should incorporate other art forms into their work. How should they think about going about that stuff? Well, don't get hung up on it. You know, like the example that you just described, I think right. is maybe, you know, for comic effect, right? It's a little yes. extreme, but yeah. I will say that musicality is very important to me as a writer. And it's not a literal translation. Uh, most of the time, I don't actually read my stuff aloud, but I do hear it in a way. I, I read out loud. I read out loud. You do. Uh, that's almost always I read I read the piece that I'm going to turn in out loud I mean, at some point. That's something that I should maybe um, carve out more time and space for. And I, I will say, now that I'm working more in radio, it, right. it's just a natural part of the process. Um <laughs> But, you know, even when I'm not reading, literally reading out loud, I I do spend an awful lot of time tinkering with rhythm, you know, thinking about how that fits in with word choice and syntax and construction. And, you know, it it, it really makes a difference if only on a subconscious level, you know, for the reader. Uh, So decisions like, do you end this sentence on a strong beat? Or do you syncopate? Do Mm -hmm. you, you know, is it an offbeat? You know, most readers don't really register that choice, but they feel it. And that can ultimately be the difference between a a story or a piece that really resonates and one that kind of feels inert. And then, you know, 
we're talking about music and rhythm, but it's not just music. You know, like you said, I mean, I'm also massively influenced by other art forms. You know, visual languages, whether it's Lee Friedlander or Carol Walker or Hiro Murai, you know, I could go on and on. Sometimes a, an editing choice or a particular slant of light will lead mm-hmm. you to just the perfect turn of phrase. Yeah, totally. And, you know, you think about, I mean, one of the things that I learn a lot from film I mean, I think people often talk derogatorily about the influence of film on storytelling, which I totally understand because prose storytelling and cinematic storytelling, they are different. They have different rules. But, you know, the editing rhythms of film are so fascinating to Mm -hmm. think about when it comes to paragraphs and edits, right? It's like, when are you holding the shot, so to speak, for a long time and then cutting away? You know, to talk Mm -hmm. about Hiro Mirai, for example, you know, the the way he uses the camera, there's often these sort of long, very frontal takes, right? How do you do that versus whatever the equivalent of Paul Greengrass quick editing is? (laughs) Right. Yeah, and then when you do go from that static shot to something that is more, you know, kinetic or or like circuit-like, you know, that's a really interesting decision. Why, you know, it goes back to that Brookmeyer idea. Why did you choose to do that in that moment? There, There is actually a reason, you know? Oh yeah, totally. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And also, if you haven't already, thank you in advance for signing up for Slate Plus. At Slate Plus, you get full access behind the paywall at the Mothership site. You get bonus segments on shows like this one, bonus full episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you support everything we do right here on Working. Go to slate.com slash working plus to sign up today. Thank you again to Maria Schneider for being our wonderful guest this week and to our producer, Cameron Drews, who is our woodwind section and our rhythm section all in one. We will be back next week with Isaac's conversation with the actor Arian Moyed, recently nominated for an Emmy for playing Stewie on Succession. Can't wait for that. But until then, get back to work. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.